Yuha Huang, thanks so much for joining Things I Didn't Learn in School. There is so much to talk about. We could talk for uh, hours, I think, but we'll try to we'll try to get through the big picture things first. So first of all, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners? China watchers will know who you are, but a generalist audience probably less so. Thank you so much, Paul, for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm Yuhua Wang. I'm an associate professor in the government department at Harvard University. Uh, I teach and do research on Chinese politics. Give us a little bit of background about where it all started. Where'd you grow up? You're one of these people that has been both educated in China and the United States. In some respects, the cultures are quite similar, but in some respects, so, so different. And bridging that is a whole journey. Describe a little bit, you know, which part of China did you grow up in? What was it like at home? How were your parents affected by China's whole tumultuous history? Yeah, I was born in the early 1980s in Beijing, China. All I remember, I guess, in the 1980s was uh, China was still a poor country. It was a planned economy. Yes. And I still remember, you know, my parents uh, told me, uh, that uh, because of me, my uh, home was entitled to two bottles of milk every day. And that's that's a right, you know, because in the planning economy, uh, you don't uh, get two bottles of milk, you know, for every family. It's only when you have a baby, you can get two bottles of milk. And then even that, they had to wake up every day, I think at five or six, and then go to wait in long lines to get two bottles of milk. And then there was no, yeah, there's no refrigerator. They have to put it in like cold water. Strange interruption for this thing. And, and I apologize to interrupt to you. So my son, who's now an adult, was born in Russia when I was a journalist there. They had the same process and I had to go through the same thing. So in <laughs> Russia, they, they came by, and if your child was born, you got a little certificate that allowed you to go pick up the milk. My wife didn't produce milk. Our son, you could get, at that point, it was more diversified economy. You could get the other milk, but our son didn't tolerate it. He liked the Russian milk that you gave you. So at like 5 a.m., I was standing in line with other Russian dads. The system still exists there, yeah, and you had yeah. to negotiate with the women over the milk allotment, because if the kid liked to eat a lot, they would give you too little. Like, oh, it's just amazing. And I, as an American, I was like, what am I doing here? But these systems, and we'll get to that a little bit. I think the the concept of uh, Soviet legacy is fascinating. Anyway, so your parents, you get the two bottles of milk. Go ahead. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Paul. I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, one thing that I realized from living in a planned economy or, or, you know, when I was a child is how important connections were. So, you know, like we talk about, mm -hmm. you, know, you have to negotiate with a milk lady and then you have yeah. to, like in the 1980s, I just remember because everything was Russian, you know, there's a limit. And then if you know the person, that made a huge difference. And then I think that that's very important in understanding, I guess, Chinese yes. system. And also, you know, a lot of the research I do later on was kind of influenced by that insight, just you need to have the connections to make things work. Yes. And what did your mom and dad do? Were they professionals? Were they? They were both working in state-owned enterprises. So my dad was in a uh, in a state-owned enterprise uh, in Beijing that does uh, imports and exports, uh -huh. and uh, my mom was in a state-owned uh, school, basically teaching. So we were both, you know, kind of employees of the state system and then we live in this compound where I think you know at the beginning it was my mom's uh, company's compound where you know all her colleagues live 
there. Also very Soviet. Yeah, exactly. Very Soviet. So that's kind of a you know state-owned system. And um, yeah, that's you know, that's the early 1980s. But that but I think the first time I think I encountered politics was probably 1989. You probably know what happened in 1989 yeah. in Beijing. And you know, I was there and uh you know I just remember this, I think it's probably late May were probably early June in 1989 and the school was canceled. I was just walking <gasps> home from my school. You know, I live like 10 minutes from home, but I, you know, school was canceled at noon. So we I just walk home and then I saw tanks like roaming on the street, very close to like just in front of my house. And then- So and you, then lived the, at, you lived close to downtown? Very close, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, then, and were your parents touched by the Cultural Revolution at all? How did that affect that? That's another story. Yeah, so they were both sent down use uh, during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, there were uh, teenagers in er, uh, in late 1960s, and that's when you know Mao said you know all the young people should be sent down to the countryside. Uh, they are now the only child in their own families, but then they are probably you know one of the oldest uh, children in their own family. So they were chosen by kind of their their family to be sent down. So they were both sent down to this one small village in northeastern part of China. Mm -hmm. uh, my my father was from the northeastern part of China, Harbin. He's up near Hubei, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and my mom was from Beijing, so they didn't know each other before that. And then, um, but they were sent down to the same village in Heilongjiang where they met each other, and then they stayed there for ten years. So in some sense, you know, I you know I'm grateful sort of for the Cultural Revolution because that that made me because they brought the parents together. But it can be quite severe. I mean, it is for. For listeners that don't know China geography well, this is sort of maybe the American equivalent of like Maine. Exactly, exactly. Like rural Maine type of thing. And this, the winters can be very severe cold up there. Very severe, very severe. They were uh, doing agricultural work, um, you know, hard labor uh, for 10 years. They were not allowed to, to go home uh, very often. Uh, you know, my mom told me maybe she could go back in you know, every two years. And then for a very limited time, and then um, so they, you know, they they have mixed feelings about that experience. Actually, you know, when they told me about this, you know, first of all, they they might love, you know, that's important. Uh, yes. They met each other, uh, but also uh, they kind of hated that experience since they lost their education. They were supposed to go to school, you know, like high of course, school, like so many of them in, in 1986. Uh, 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 sorry. 1968, but then they right. sent down. So they were, and then they, they only came back in like late 1970s, you know, after Deng Xiaoping uh, took over. So that's a really long time. Yes. Yeah. And if you ever think that education is a burden, just have it being taken away from you. And all of a sudden you realize what a magical thing it is. Did they talk about that experience some with you? Or was this something that they didn't want to go into so much? They talked a lot, actually. Yeah, I think they their best friends now uh, are still the people they were sent down with, like the people who were in the same village, and then you know the same young people who were sent down, but also were able to come back. And then their best friends are still those people. They are, you know, they have this WeChat group with all right. the people, and then they, you know, they they repeatedly told me the stories there, like you know. Um, uh, you know, one thing that I learned from the stories is, uh, you know, they they really uh, want me to be careful because now they know I'm a political scientist. And then, um, you know, being a political scientist for them means you're, I'm doing politics. Yes. <laughs> and then they, you know, they always told me, you need 
to be careful. You need to be careful when you're doing politics because you know politics can be cruel and unpredictable. I think that's I think they got it from the Cultural Revolution. That is their you know their own fate was so unpredictable. You know, for example, in the 1960s, but also they understood that uh, during the Cultural Revolution, you you need to be very careful. You know, say things. And you know, my 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 dad told me this story where you know he was criticizing I think one of the leaders of the Cultural Revolution, and then he was punished. I think in the late 1960s or early yes. 70s and then uh you know he lost the opportunity to come back uh, because of this you know he was chosen i guess by someone to go to college at the time but then you know he said something wrong and then he was you know deprived of the opportunity so he, you know he was always very cautious um and then he always told me to be cautious i think that's what he learned uh, from the cultural revolution right so you're that's such a big big risk taker yeah relative to those who want to talk about that and, and something else i want to return to but i want to get through this chronologically because it's the out of a thing is so interesting some of your research touches on this what happens when there is a loss of trust through the experience of something like the cultural revolution and something else that i didn't see explicitly in your research but i'm certainly curious from what i want to play at the seat if we have time is the cost of disrupting families like this so there's a lot of research i wrote a book about adopting a, a russian child that had had a lot of disruption in, in her life. And I looked at this in Russia, you know, the purges and the disruptions. And then I've got many Chinese friends whose lives were personally disrupted by the Cultural Revolution. And there's, of course, the hunger and the fear and the political, but there's also this just very basic connection with parents with children. It is such a basic, basic connection. And it was so fundamentally disrupted. And I think that the legacy of that is probably very, very long. You know, it's made me think about things of the African-American families, the United States, and the disruption of slavery. These, I mean, you begin to sever the relationship of parents to children, and I think that there's possibly a huge consequence for this. It's maybe hard to precisely measure, but I suspect that it might be real, and I'd love your thoughts about that. But let's save that a little bit for later. So you're growing up into this very, you know, probably materially constrained, but what a fascinating household to grow up in because of all these changes. So how old are you during Tiananmen Square? I was eight in oh. 1989. Okay. So all of a sudden you go from like very ordered to tanks coming in and that's got to sort of spark your imagination and thought, what was going on with you during that time? Your parents must've been terrified. Yeah, that was really a shock. I think before that, I was just not aware of politics. I didn't, you know, I, I don't feel it's part of my life. Yes. But I think, you know, that moment when I was walking home and seeing tanks roaming on the street, and then, you know, especially when soldiers, you know, all the tanks had soldiers standing, yes. you know, then with the, with the machine gun pointing at the pedestrians. Yes. And then I was just walking on the street, you know, like we were like 10 feet away. Yes. And then, and I was like a second grader. Yes. And then I saw the, saw the soldiers moving along and pointing the machine guns at me and then one by one like it's like a like a, a queue of tanks that just you know, that that moment still is in my head you know every time i think about 1989 that that's the picture i you know i had in my head and i just you know i didn't feel anything at the time you know when i was eight but then it's only afterwards that i, I felt the shock and then you know really strong shock every time i think about it you know, I feel so scared at that moment because I yes, it's terrifying. You know, they could you know have shot the gun. You know, you know nobody would care because at the time they were shooting guns. You know, what if they were shooting the gun? You know, I you know I was walking there. I was so close to them, and then that moment, I think that was the moment that really 
make me think about politics, you know, starting to think about politics and then and then got interested in politics and then really starting to think about, you know, government power, you know, violence, right. uh, repression, all those ideas maybe, you know, came from that moment when I was eight years old. Yep. Was there any uh, foreign language study in your household? Did your parents, have, your father was the import-export, so was there, when did that begin to seep into your thinking like okay there's china which is a very rich culture and history but then there's an outside world and how do i begin to understand that well both my parents i think were educated in you know 1950s 1960s and then when russian was the foreign language at the time so so in school you know both of them learned russian rather than english yes and then um so so uh and then i didn't have the thought of going abroad until I was in college. I think, you know, it's only in college I met with professors who were educated in the U.S. And then, uh, you know, I, I gradually developed the idea that I wanted to become an academic. So I wanted to do research. And then I loved the life of being an academic, you know, teaching in the university. And then I started looking up to those professors at Peking University where I was uh, doing my college and a lot of them got their PhDs from the US. So I started talking to them and then one of them became my advisor later on, uh, Professor Shen Mingming, who got his PhD from the University of Michigan in the mid-1990s. And then he was one of the first wow. you know, uh, who got a PhD in political science from the US. And then you know he then returned to China. And then he really was a huge inspiration for me. You know, he 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 took me under his wings and then um have me joining his team on, on uh, doing surveys in China. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, and then he was the one who encouraged me to uh, come to the U.S. and do a PhD. And this was the time when, you know, there was these sort of pendulums in U.S.-China relationships. At that time, things looked like, well, there's going to, you know, it's going to gradually opening up, it's a Chinese system, but maybe we'll have more rule of law, and so it's have a certain trajectory that now seems very different. Okay, so then you come to the U.S., and had you been to the U.S. before? No, that was the first time. I arrived um, in August uh, 2006. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what, you know, you, like you said, that was the golden age of China-U.S. relations. I feel yes. you know, everybody was, you know, they, they like each other. And then there are a lot of um, just people-to-people interactions, but also be, uh, between the governments, you know, things were going really well at the time. Yeah, I remember. I think that that was, I'd have to look back at my passports, but I think my first trip to China was around your time, the first trip here, and I'd had all that experience in Russia. But I remember it was very, very warm and collaborative and really deeply respectful and curious on both sides uh, at that time. And I was more in the financial sphere, but it was, you know, the opening up the capital markets, et cetera. Okay, so then you have this this career there. You, you know, you develop as, as an academic, and I want to get into sort of how you distill both what's going on now and 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 how you put that in the context of the history. But before we get off that, talk about you. Like you, you know, your English is you must be shockingly gifted because it's it's almost completely un, un, unaccented. But there is, I mean, I we changed the email a little bit. Like I've watched this with my wife and I and having a bicultural, like you can never really absorb. It's sort of like on a spectrum. Like I, I used to think of people when I worked in China, even if they grew up in Chinese speaking households, it was like some people are hundred percent Chinese. Some people were like 80% Chinese and 20% American. Some people weren't really clear. I mean, it's this whole range. So what has that experience been like to you to deeply understand America, but also be deeply Chinese? 
Yeah, I guess I'm changing. You know, I I, I have been in this country for uh, more than 16 years. And then, um, you know, it took me a long time, I guess, to get adjusted. And, you know, why, why I arrived, I remember the first day when I arrived, I need to call my landlord. And then, uh, you know, I was, uh, uh, so I asked a, you know, a, um, a person who lived in that building, uh, who gave me the phone number of my landlord. And I just, I couldn't recognize even the phone number because, you know, he, he wrote <laughs> six in a different way or four. I just, I don't remember. And then I asked people, this is four or six. So that's the, you know, that's the cultural shock I get. And just, you know, after learning English for, you know, uh, uh, almost 20 years in China, you know, the first day I arrived in Anabra, I just, even couldn't remember or recognize the phone number. But isn't but, it humbling? It's like the most humbling experience. <laughs> spending hours and hours studying something, and then you go there and you're exposed to jargon or a dialect. Exactly. And you don't understand a word. You're like, exactly. Exactly. what was all that work for? Exactly. Yeah. And then you know the the English we learned in China was all British English, and then we so we learned those words like trousers, you know, campaign, and then that's classic. And I was looking for like trousers, you know, <laughs> there's no trousers, and then and then yeah, so, you know, those are all the obstacles I had, and then it's but gradually, you know, I, I went to the University of Michigan for my PhD, and then so I went to the seminars in my first year. I just couldn't understand, you know, anything. You know, just the people were talking. I just I had no idea what they were talking. And then you know, and then it's my turn to say something. I just you know, I, I you know, I, I couldn't perform. I, I don't know what to say. You know, I have some thoughts, but I need to take like ten minutes to organize my thoughts into like a whole mm. sentence. So that was so that was very frustrating the first year. But but gradually, you know, I, I caught on, and then I started teaching as a teaching assistant. And then so so that's you know, it's a whole process. And after maybe two or three years, you know, my English was getting better. And then I, I really got used to, you know, conversations, having conversations, but also writing English. So, so, so that's a long process, I guess. But then also, you know, uh, things also changed after I had a family. I think, you know, so my wife came one year after me, and then she also uh, did a degree at the University of Michigan in survey methodology. Mm. And then um, in 2012, we had a daughter. You know, she was born Congratulations. in Philadelphia when we were working there. And then she, you know, she's she a pure American, you know, she's, yes. so she, she's a Chinese American, but, you know, she grew up here. She went to school here. Now she speaks English perfectly. You know, she, when she speaks Chinese, you know, she has a strong accent yeah. and then, you know, all her friends are Americans. So, so I think, you know, her, she really transformed us in some way that is, you know, yes. she really exposes us to what the American education system is you know what you know what sounds i should listen to for example and then you know what movies we should watch and then so so she's i think the 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 bridge that connect us and then the american world sort of so, so i think you know, i became more american sort of you know after i became a dad that makes a lot of sense and how, are your are your parents still alive and what do they make of this yes they are yeah they are in beijing you know that's a good point that you brought up brought up about their experience in the Cultural Revolution and then how they see family. I think, you know, they, um, you know, after they came back from the small village uh, in Heilongjiang province, uh, they really cherished the family life that they started to have, you know, so after 10 years, they were able to reunite with their own families and their parents and also their siblings. And then they always had the fear of uh, being separated again. Yes. And uh, when I came to the U.S., I just remember this, you know, when I told them that I decided to come to the U.S. to do graduate school, that's like their biggest fear mm. you know, coming true. Mm. It's like, you know, losing their son again. And then I'm the only child in the family. And I was born in 1980s after the one child policy. 
was implemented. So, you know, I'm the only thing they had. Yes. And when they realized that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm repeating the same thing that they were doing, you know, which means, you know, when I was young, you know, I need to go far, you know, a place that is far away. And then that's like their biggest fear. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'm, I, you know, I still feel sorry for, for that because, you know, I, you know, I'm the only child. And then I, I try my best to see my parents, you know, every year. And then, you know, in the last um, 16 years, I try to, you know, um, invite them here to come to the U.S. and stay with us as much as possible. But, you know, during the pandemic, it's been so difficult. I haven't seen my parents for three years. Oh, boy. So that's the thing I really feel sorry for. That's the, you know, that's the one thing that I, you know, if I can do something, I really want to improve that. Now, if we turn to your work, it seems to be both very grounded in deep academic research, evidence-based, et cetera, but with a particular accent, obviously, on what you know very well, which is China. The picture you paint reading your, I did a sort of what, you know, once you were kind enough to agree, I did a crash course (laughs) on all of your thinking, and I think I need to get more of it. But the picture you paint is one where let me try to summarize it, and you can tell me where I'm wrong and help clarify. You know, China is now this broadly seen as this, certainly politically, as this enormous enemy. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have really shifted their thinking relative to this when you came to the Michigan and I first went to China. But the picture you paint is one where you really have to understand China against the sort of like a melange of hardwired systems that go back thousands of years that are related to emperors and dynasties and the way that they establish legitimacy within a more authoritarian system and modernity, both the Soviet software and technology and the need for importing capitalism. And it's sort of like this bizarre hybrid of these systems and that you have authoritarian leaders, but they really need to draw support from their close network of families. And I think you've said that there might be, I think in some of your talks, a hundred leading families that are kind of interrelated, almost like a very intricate clan or club or maybe mafia. It depends on the, the word you use on it. And this is both interrelated to the support of the government and the support of companies. And that the sort of extracting what these very intricate relationships are is probably exceedingly difficult for outsiders to understand how the system changes. And you paint a picture that I'll be quiet, that is both very strong and stable, but is also very insecure because there are these chronic issues around how you transfer power and how you, because there's no really fixed rules in the system. So that's sort of what I'm deducing from your research. That's a big summary over many, many articles, many books, et cetera. But tell me where I'm right, where I'm wrong. That's perfect, Paul. Yeah, that, that's great. That's great. Um, you know, this is really going back to the insight that we talk about connections and the importance of connections in understanding uh, Chinese politics, you know, back to the milk bottles. Yes. You need to know the people. And then that really gave me the insight. I think that influenced my research, you know, all of my research, basically, that I try to understand Chinese politics through the lens of networks that is you know how people are connected with each other and how they use their connections to do something your summary is great i think you know one thing that i try to discover is how rulers in china you know both the past and also the present stay in power yes and i think that's a that's a really important question in 
in political science. Which, which just pause for a second, I think is very, very hard for outsiders to understand about China in the following sense, because the typical thing that you will say, like if you read, you know, speech from American politicians, both on the left and the right, is that authoritarian regimes are very brittle. And certainly the history of Russia or Eastern Europe, that's accurate. But if you look at China's history, as you pointed out, many of these regimes that in some sense are very similar to the, very different, but also very similar to the present one, they last hundreds and hundreds of years. But then they have the vicious crisis, unbelievable turmoil, huge loss of capital, and sometimes life, and then a new system. <laughs> you know, so it's right, right. the permanence, of the understanding both how it's so strong and how it's so weak. I think is very hard for certainly Americans to grasp. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. You, you know, right. So, so uh, you know, I was really trying to understand how the regime was so durable, you know, for such a long time, but also, you know, how how individual rulers, you know, both you know emperors. In Chinese history, but also you know presidents, uh, uh, party chair, chair chairman, you know stay in power for such a long time in contemporary China. And then you know the the way I did this was to collect a lot of data. You know I'm a quantitative yes. um, researcher, so you know the way I did this is I collected the data on all the rulers in the past you know two thousand years. You know from the first emperor, the Qin Shi Huangdi, you know from more than two thousand years ago to the current leaders. And then, uh, and then I I, I read uh, their biographies. So I look at you know how their you know their upbringing, you know their 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 life stories, but also more more importantly how they died. The Chinese rulers uh, in the last two thousand years, first of all, you know are not as secure as we thought. You know we all saw that you know right. uh, dictators, for example, they stay in power for a long time. But you know in my in the last you know two thousand years, over uh, about five hundred uh, people, you know uh, emperors, you know. Char, char people, and then uh, almost half of them were assassinated by the elites. Um, and then that- whoa, whoa, whoa! Pause for a second. This is huge. I thought the number was the number I'd heard is that there had been three hundred and thirty empires, and like ten percent of them were murdered. But you're defining this slightly different. It's certainly more dangerous than being U.S. president. But just slow, <laughs> like, like, like me understand. You're saying your five hundred number is emperors plus somebody else. Who is who's the 500? More accurately, maybe I should say this. Maybe I should say the 400. You know, among the 400 emperors, uh, only half of them died naturally in office. No way. That's more accurate. Yeah. So that so four. So there's been since the beginning of basically written history all the way. There's been 400 emperors of China, and yeah. you're saying 200 of them have been murdered. Um, half of them. So you know. Half of them died peacefully in office. The <laughs> other half died unnaturally. And then, you know, and then among but those- Is unnaturally yeah. murdered? Um, a lot of them. Yes. A lot of them were okay. murdered by the elites. But, 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 but also, you know, some of them were, you know, killed in wars. And then you, you never know what happened because they were killed in wars. And then it might be people around them. It might be the right. foreign enemies, right. might be the rebels. But, but, but I think the, the most important thing that I realized from the data is only half of them died peacefully in office. And then that shocked me. You know, the, the moment I found out about that, that, that really shocked me. That is, a, that is an amazing statistic. They all died peacefully. You know, they were, you know, they were living like 100 years old, then they died in office. That's not true. Yeah. And so then, I don't, maybe I assume you have way more insight than I do, but stories about the potential, just to flash forward a little bit, and then we'll go back to this instability, because it's so interesting. 
stories about the potential coup that may or may not have been organized against Xi Jinping by Zhao Yongkong. And then in Mao's time, the effort, you know, the possibly the cool, the cool with those episodes, if they're accurate, fit in completely with that history of what you're talking about, the 200 unnatural deaths. Yeah, that's one thing I, you know, I, I learned from the data. That is, uh, you know, I thought, emperor, you know, first of all, I thought emperors were very secure. You know, they, they stay in yes. office for a long time. But also, you know, for the ones that didn't die peacefully, I thought they were either overthrown by the people. Like, you know, there was a peasant rebellion, you know, mass rebellion that went to the capital and killed the, the, the emperor. Uh, or by foreign enemies, like, Mongolians came in and then right, killed. Right, right, right. I saw those are the most cases. But then, you know, looking at my data, I realized very few emperors were killed either by the peasants or by the foreign enemies. Actually, most of them were assassinated or deposed by the people around them. You know, the the it's the, just like a corporation. The it's like yeah, a exactly. modern corporation. Exactly, exactly. And then that really you know, made me think, you know, what's the most important danger to rulers or, you know, what, you know, what's the biggest threat to a rule is not actually from the outside and not from the U.S., for example, not from, yes. you know, foreign enemies, not from the people. Uh, it's actually from the elites, uh, you know, who are within the system. So, so I think that's that's a really important realization. So we ought to, we, I want to go into all that because your research is a lot about how they form networks to try to keep those elites connected and supported. But one question I've always had, which I've probably, I just haven't seen it in my reading is, I don't get why a place as sophisticated as China with the long history of learning and scholarships and exams and everything like that, why they haven't solved the transfer the power problem. In other words, you began to see countries which weren't that wealthy or sophisticated in this, you know, 17th and 18th century and other parts of the world begin to say, wait a minute, this problem is going to recur again and again and again. We need to develop some sort of mechanism to solve it. And China has all these inventions and all this intellectual property and blah, 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 all this type of stuff. But that one specific thing <laughs> never seems to enter into, in any deep, profound way, into the political traditions of it seems very foreign, even though other places, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, et cetera, they developed it. So can you help explain that at all? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, that worries me every day, you know, this succession in contemporary China. I think that's the one thing that can keep me up at night. And, you know, that's the biggest worry that I have. In historical China, they had a solution, which is primogeniture. That is, you you give your power to your son. And then, yes. and then Chinese emperors had a lot of sons. You know, they don't have trouble funding the best son. So that's, you know, that that became a very good solution. That is, you, 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 you pass your throne to your smartest or, you know, best son. And then your son is much younger than you. So your son can wait until you die. And then, you know- Particularly uh, if you have multiple wives. I mean, this sounds kind of crude, but then you would have a huge choice of sons. You might have 40 children or something to choose from. Right, right, right. So that succession system worked really well for about 2000 years. But in in uh, under the communist, they cannot do this, right? They, they abandoned this whole monarchy system, but which created a tension that is, uh, how can you choose someone that you can trust? but also capable, right? Um, so, you know, Mao made two mistakes. You know, Mao, um, uh, first successor was Liu Shaoqi, but he didn't trust Liu Shaoqi during the Cultural Revolution. So he abandoned Liu Shaoqi. And then he chose someone who was 
capable, but probably not very loyal, you know, who is Lin Biao. And then um, Lin Biao was trying to assassinate Mao, you know, in- That was one of those attempts, In the right? 1970s, yeah. And then, you know, it's it's because Lin was not much younger than Mao. So, so Lin, you know, was not very patient to wait until Mao died to take the throne. You know, he was very impatient. Uh, and, then, and then he was also very capable, but not very loyal. And then Mao, Turned his idea, and then Mao told someone that is very loyal but not very capable. That is Hua Guofeng, right? And then you know Hua became the um, chairman of the Chinese Communist Party after Mao died. But but, but Hua was so incapable that uh, Deng came back and then deposed him. So you know that was you know, those those were those were the two mistakes that Mao made. You know he chose someone that is either loyal or capable. But you know in the ideal case you want to choose someone that is both capable and loyal. That's the challenge, I guess. And then or 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 just to push back a little bit, or you basically say that the characteristics needed to lead a place as complex as China are not the same characteristics that give you the ability to pick your successor. Right. And that's the alternative. And the thing I've never understood is why there hasn't been more attention paid to that. Because even in that primogeniture thing that you're talking about, it's still like, I think about, you know, from a trading perspective, this sounds kind of strange, but it's my world. To make money, one of the biggest things you have to do is not lose money. Because once you lose money, you're compounding on a smaller amount of money. And if I look at China's wealth over long periods of time, when they have stability, make money, make money, because there's the work ethic, education. But then when you have one of these breaks, is huge losses of wealth. And then they have to restart again from a lower base. So even in the primogeniture, it would seem that people who have been studying that over long, long periods of time, even before the 20th century, they might have said, hey, Let's try to figure out some other process to transfer power, but it just doesn't seem to have connected there, and I'm not quite sure why. Yeah, well, I guess you know one thing that the communist senior leaders really care about is they want to find someone like the young among the younger generation who is not only loyal to you know the the leaders, but also who is loyal to the regime, you know, who is yes. loyal to you know who you know who is believed to be able to carry on you know, the uh, the communist regime who doesn't defect like, you know, Gorbachev did. Right. Um, and then I think that's their biggest worry. And then, you know, that's, you know, that can explain, for example, why they chose Xi Jinping to be the top leader. You know, Xi is a princeling, you know, which means he's the son right. of a founding father. You know, he's... So he's kind of in the dynastic tradition in a way. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of, you know, primogeniture in, in some sense, right? You, you choose one of your sons. But now, but now the, the, the question is, uh, it's not only the, for example, Mao's son. You know, Mao's son died in the Korean War, but you know, one of the sons, you know, the sons of the founding fathers. I think, I think they had some consensus. And then in the 1980s, Chen Yun, who was the top leader at the time, working with Deng Xiaoping. After 1989, uh, Deng had a conversation with Chen Yun, and then Chen Yun basically said that, you know, in the future we have to pass our throne to one of our sons. You know, he he said this um, um, to Deng Xiaoping. So I think that's the. You know, that's the mindset of the senior party leaders. That is, they only trust their own children. And then that's why Xi Jinping took power. But then now the problem is, you know, you don't have a third generation successor. Right. Because, you know, the, the people who are in the third generation, they're not in politics. You know, they're interested in fashion design, you know, maybe music, art. Of course. This is the same thing that happened to the Soviet Union, yeah. too, by the way. The third generation was was very... Uh, hard. What do the people at the CCP think about your research then? Because it's, I, it seems, it strikes me as accurate, but it's also 
maybe a little bit shocking because it 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 says that these medieval traditions are still alive and well. They probably have mixed feelings. You know, I I don't know, frankly, but I but I think just in terms of uh, what they allow me, or you know, when I get invitations to 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 speak uh, in China, you know, online now, yes. uh, but to 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 audiences in China, you know, uh, they are very selective. You know, I, I do things that they probably don't like. You know, for example, I study corruption, repression. You know, I never get the invitations to talk about those topics, but but they like me to talk about history. And then, you know, they all the invitations I get now to speak uh, on Zoom, for example, in China is about Chinese emperors, you know, Chinese history. And then, you know, I they don't want me to talk about contemporary implications, but, you know, when I focus on history, they're okay. So, you know, they're very selective, I guess, in terms of the, the type of research that they can talk about in China. Even though they know you have this other type of uh, research. Talk a little bit, if you would, because your research is so detailed, goes back to this, about how these emperors, uh, both present and in the past, construct these networks of support. And I know there's different models for different time you had, et cetera, but it's quite intricate. And to me, also struck me as, as very reflective of what my experience was in China. When you met somebody Sometimes you'd meet people who were from one of those families, and it was like hushed tones. Like, and there's a little bit of the United States that you know, if you notice recently, the only Republican who could really challenge other Republicans is Liz Cheney. Yeah. You know, she has one of these. So there's hints of it here. It's just not. It's strong. So describe a little bit that you know that long tradition in China, if you would. Yeah, I guess you know the most striking thing that I found about different dynasties is um, there were a change of dynasties in every two or 300 years, but then every dynasty was founded on a network of elites that uh, fought in the war uh, to replace the previous dynasty. You know, for example, if you think about all the dynasties, right? You know, at, at the beginning was always a group of um, men mm -hmm. and then their families, the, the men were usually military leaders who helped the founding emperor to win wars. Mm -hmm. And then after the war, they were all rewarded by holding very high positions, but also uh, are entitled to pass their position basically to their children. Mm -hmm. And then they formed this, what I call you know, regime funding coalition basically. And then also very importantly, they, uh, they, they intermarried with each other very Extensively, so they, you know, they, uh, in some sense, they only marry each other. That is, they don't marry people outside that coalition. You know, it is very similar to the communist uh, elites as well. You know, they, uh, they only trust each other, and then their sons and daughters were married with each other, and also they were rewarded beautifully. You know, uh, thinking about not only positions but also material benefits, right? Um, and then, you know, to understand, I think those dynasties were the rise and fall of those dynasties. We have to understand those families and then the ways in which they were connected with each other. And then, you know, whether they can stay connected was very important, but also, you know, the, uh, the ruler's um, strategy to divide those families was also very important. You know, in, in, in cases where uh, the rulers were able to divide those families were used some ways to fragment the network, um, the ruler would become more secure because they were able to stay in power longer because those families would break up and then those elites would not take collective action against the ruler. In a lot of dynasties, for example, in the Tang dynasty, where the, you know, you talk about the uh, 
200 noble families in the Tang family, uh, in, the, in the Tang dynasty. The problem for the Tang ruler was the 200 families were so strong, they intermarried so extensively, and then they are so geographically concentrated in the capital, they posed a great threat uh, to the Tang emperors. And then the, you know, the Tang emperors in late Tang period, you know, around uh, 8th century, 9th century, almost half of the Tang emperors were deposed by the elites, you know, and then the elites were all from those 200 families, and because they were so connected with each other, they can take collective action, they can coordinate against the ruler so easily. And then that's something the the emperors didn't want. So starting in later period, for example, starting the Song Dynasty, which is uh, 10th century, 11th century, uh, the most important thing the, the the rulers had to do is to break up that that network, you know, to to make people uh, not marry each other, and then and then uh, uh, to fragment the elites. But then the trade-off is once you fragment the elites. The rulers can now stay in power longer and longer. You know that's what I saw in the data that is starting from the 10th century, for example. The Chinese emperors were, were able to stay in power for like for a very long time, like 20 years to 30 years. But the problem is the elites are now so fragmented that they cannot do anything. You know, and then the the Chinese state became weaker and weaker because the elites are so fragmented. They are so in incoherent, and they cannot make policies to make China stronger. And then I think that's the key to understanding. Uh, the decline of imperial China. That is why is such a durable political system so weak over time. My answer is, you know, the the structure of the network among the elites was so key to understanding this. That is, you know, starting in the 10th century, the the network became so fragmented. Right. And then that contributed to the longer duration of the rulers, but also contributed to the weakening of the Chinese state. Which makes total sense, which is that the longer the regime exists, the more fragmented and far-flung this empire is going to begin, and thus it's harder to control and coalesce. And again, it's also similar to a corporation, which they need to create growth. And so they buy more and more businesses, and it becomes more and more cumbersome. And then you get a different type of person running it, and then typically the corporation collapses. I mean, most corporations mm -hmm. don't last more than about 30 years, and so it's just slightly right, longer. Right, the right. government, because the government can tax, it doesn't really need to have profits. So it can go out of business more slowly, but it can still go out of business if you can't do it. So in some sense, the Chinese, then you paint a picture. In other words, even though they're seen right now as the ultimate threat politically in Washington, you create a picture of one of also uh, fragility. In other words, you're kind of, if you're running this, like I imagine if you're Xi Jinping, which is quite a big thing to imagine, but <laughs> the complication of the decisions you need to make are unbelievably intricate now. And particularly once you start, A, introducing capitalism, which you have to do after the Soviet Union collapses, and B, if you send your children to be educated abroad, I mean, she's daughter is a graduate of the fine institution that you are a part of now, that begins to introduce new ideas like a virus into the system. And maybe not everybody will introduce the virus, but some of them will. So it becomes quite unwieldy, I would think. I agree. I think there's a dilemma, right, of for the Chinese leaders, that is, uh, on the one hand, you want to develop the economy because you, you want people to be happy, right? You want you want their income to to, to rise yes. um, continuously, and then the only way to do that is is to engage with the global world, you know, to to promote people to go abroad and then you know bring back know how and then you know all the ideas, but also at the same time you want to stay in power 
And then stay empowered in China means that you want to constrain people. You don't want to people have yes. different ideas. And, and it's a big issue with rule of law too, because you need to have powerful corporations that will develop things, which means you need to have fixed rules for commercial disputes. But on the other hand, you need to install your family clan in there. So you can have a mighty insurance company, but then you also might have the major shareholders be from one of these ruling families, which creates a conflict right away. Exactly. Yeah. That's my argument in my first book. Uh, so, I, you know, so I argue that they, they want the rule of law because, you know, like you said, you you need some rule to promote the market economy, right? You, you 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 need some laws, but also the courts to be efficient, to be fair, so that the economy can develop. But that but but then at the same time, uh, you also want to bend the rule a little bit, you know, when when uh, right some families are involved. But also, you don't want the rules to be used by the people against you, right? You know, once you put the rule of law in the place. Uh, the people can use the court system, for example, to challenge the Communist Party. That's something they don't want. Yes. And then the strategy they they, they did was they, they separate cases. You know, for example, they say, you know, for commercial cases, if, for example, right. two companies are suing each other, you know, I will let it go and then let the rule of law play its role. But then in some other cases, for, uh, say, for example, political cases, when, when citizens are suing the state, they will constrain the courts and then uh, ban the court to make sure that the Communist Party doesn't lose. Let's talk about the going forward picture a little bit. So first of all, I think COVID is a big issue because first of all, there's a long history of natural disasters having a decisive impact on regimes, particularly in China, floods, earthquakes, all this type of thing. And now you have COVID. Second of all, they have the zero transmission policy and their own vaccines don't work very well across Omicron. So there's a real, in other words, if they didn't shut down the country, millions and millions and millions of Chinese would be dead now. On the other hand, shutting down the country really increases the control of the government in sort of ways that freezes the development. And if you think it's going to take, I mean, this thing could last years. I mean, people are thinking that the COVID stuff begins to ebb in the West. And maybe it does, you know, at the end of this year with a new booster or something like that. But in China, if they're not going to use the Western vaccines and they don't have the mRNA vaccines, this could take five more years. And so this is a huge deal. And then talk a little bit about, you know, she's going to go basically to become, he's going to now abrogate these term limits. He could be there for life, basically, a little bit like Putin. And then Taiwan. So those three issues, that's a lot of things to talk through, but what are your thoughts? It's very important to point out, I guess, is uh, in the last two years, you know, since um, December uh, 2019, that's the first uh, public discovery of COVID in China. There has been, first of all, a decrease in public support for the Communist Party, but then a huge increase of public support for the Chinese Communist Party. And then, that, you know, that's that's interesting to point out. I think this, you know, we, uh, you know, while when, when I think about this issue, you know, it's, it's, it's actually, I think it's critical to understand that um, so far, you know, you know, we don't know what happened in the, in the next five years, yep. COVID news, but so far the Communist Party has done a very good job in soliciting public support from the Chinese citizens because of its control policy, you know the, uh, uh, the 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 low numbers in China in the last two years uh, compared with what's happening in other parts of the world, I think, <laughs> um, made Chinese people feel their political system is probably better than others. Of course, you've had 
850,000 Americans are dead. It's right. hard for you, if you're watching this on TV, to argue this is a superior system. Right, right. It's, yeah, that's, you know, that's the thing that is, you know, before COVID, you know, every time I talk to my friends in China, you know, I try to show, you know, what are the advantages of the U.S. system, you know, democracy, freedom. But during COVID, I have to say, you know, it's a little bit harder <laughs> to, to make that argument. Right. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but more importantly, I think for the party, you know, I would say so far they have benefited um, in terms of public support. They have benefited a lot from COVID. Um, yes. But that, but that's that might be too early to say, because, like you said, you know, it might continue for another five years. Then that would be a different picture. There and not if, here, because we can get the vaccines plus exactly, more herd immunity because exactly, the Omicron exactly. thing. And yeah. all of a sudden, it's like, no, you could really be free. Like you could go vacation in Italy and come back home, and everything's fine. And I think that that's why. You know, it's it's uh, what's Zhao and Lai say about the, you know, it's about the uh, American system or something like that. He says it's too early to tell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 I totally agree with you. I think if the trajectory is that, for example, you know, COVID ends, you know, in this country, but also in Europe, for example, but then China became, you know, um, like hundred cases or like a hundred thousand cases every day, that would really reverse. Uh, the trend that is, you know, people would say, oh, you know, uh, you know, our policies in the past were were right, but now, you know, uh, it proved that actually we should have opened the door, and then uh, we don't have to suffer now. And then they compare China with the U.S. They might conclude that it's actually at the end of the day, you know, democracy still wins. That might be the case, you know, going forward, but we don't know yet. I guess. Yes. Yeah, and it's a long case. And what do you think about the model in my mind? that she is doing is what Putin is doing in terms of change the constitution, stay in power forever. And he would say that it is, you know, boy, this generational change for the reasons you're saying is the most delicate. We really need a strong leader to be able to engineer this. But the 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 more he is successful in leading, depending on how you measure success, actually the riskier the proposition becomes of transferring power. I agree. I agree. That is, uh, you, you want to group, so, you know, one thing that I, found in my study of all the past rulers is, you know, to have a successful or peaceful succession, you have to groom your successor very early on. Mm. And then for most Chinese emperors, they did this mostly, you know, in the first five years of their reign. That is, you know, after five years, you become the emperor, you already have a successor, and then you groom this yep. person, you know, the prince, the crown prince, and then you give the crown, crown prince a lot of positions so that he can accumulate power, but also make it public so that other EDs can build coalitions with this new prince. And then they know their future is certain with this new guy. Right. And then I think that's really important for the regime to continue. And then the thing that's, uh, what worries me is it seems that she is delaying uh, appointing a crown prince. And then that's very dangerous because, you know, people feel uncertain within the system, you know, all the communist party leaders feel uncertain who will become the next leader, you know, who who should I build connections with? And what about my future, right? What about my family's future in the next 20 years? I think that uncertainty is very risky. What, what about, well said, what about territorial expansion? So a lot of the things that, you know, she himself will say, and a lot of the Chinese propaganda is, Unlike the United States, we don't have a history of forcibly changing borders and et cetera, interfering. It doesn't seem to me that that's entirely true. There's certainly, you know, look at the South China Sea and Tibet, depending on how you argue these types of things. So it's, but maybe it's less openly imperialistic than, say, Russia. 
So the obviously the huge issue is Taiwan. And this would really, really be a game changer, I think, for the world. If they were to put pressure, I don't think it changes anything, but if they were to use military force, and obviously there's a widespread view in China that the United States is an, is an unstoppable decline. So there's certainly the prospect. What, what are your thoughts on, on the risks there? I know it's not your specific national security area of interest, but just as a, a scholar putting it within the context of Chinese history. That's another one of my worries, I guess, in the next 20 years. And then, you know, it, you know the, the bottom line, I guess, is that there's still a very small probability that China will initiate a war with Taiwan to conquer Taiwan. I think that, you know, that event is still a very small probability event um, for the following reasons. That is, you know, I, you know, I assume that the Chinese Communist Party understands, even though they can win the war, they would have great troubles governing Taiwan. You know, uh, you know what we learn from uh, Taiwan is in the past 20 years, there has been a huge increase, according to public opinion polls, um, there has been a huge increase in the proportion of Taiwanese people who no longer identify themselves with mainland China. You know, if you ask the question, for example, do you think you are Chinese or you are Taiwanese? Right. You know, say 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, a lot of people say I'm Chinese, but then uh, 30 years ago, they might say I'm both Taiwanese and Chinese. But in the last 20 years, among the younger generation, very few people would say I'm Chinese. You know, a lot of more and more people say I'm only Taiwanese. Everybody I knew in not only in Taiwan, but also in Beijing and other places who were Taiwanese who were working there, if I asked them, oh, where are you right, from? Exactly. Very that, clear. That, oh, I'm Taiwanese. Exactly. That identification is very important in understanding the Taiwanese society. So, so which means that, you know, let's assume that uh, the Communist Party wins the war. What happens afterwards? You know, send troops to Taiwan like what they did in Hong Kong, but also you need to have a government, like a right. provincial government in Taiwan. And then I just cannot imagine how that government can govern, you know, Taiwan, where you know most of the people don't identify with mainland China. So they can use force, they can use violence, but that's just so costly, right? And then also the, the opposition, you know, all, all the international buzz that will create, I think I just cannot imagine. I think, you know, uh, rationally, I, you know, I think the Chinese Communist Party uh, would not make that decision, you know, to to start the war, which is very costly to start with. But also, you know, in the next, you know, hundreds of years, it's just to govern a society that is so separate from mainland China, you know, I, I probably wouldn't do that. But that's me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're right. It is hard to say. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, also, what happened in Hong Kong was worse than I expected. So the it's you know, so it's it's I think you know, face public, et cetera. What advice would you have for U.S. policymakers, given your history, your understanding, when they engage with China? If you look at this whole swing, this is obviously incredibly complex, but <laughs> if you were advising the Biden administration about how to engage in China, what, what are they doing? What would you do differently? Well, unfortunately, the last for my advice. Uh... Well, so, some of them listen to this podcast, <laughs> seriously, so, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah you, know, you know, when I think about this, I, you know, uh, one thing that I want to point out is uh, China is not mon monolithic, which means, in, you know, yes. the, the conventional wisdom about China is, you know, everybody in China think in the same way. They're all anti-US, for example, they're very nationalistic, you know, that's wrong. In China, there are clear divisions in terms of, you know, how to deal with the US, you know, how to, you know, how to make our policies uh, with the US. And I want to point out that even within the elites, you know, uh, within the Chinese government and also uh, among the elites, there's a great number of people 
who are very friendly with the U.S., you know, who are supportive of a friendlier U.S.-China relations, you know, who got education from the U.S., for example, and then who yes. are very pro-U.S., um, you know, and then that means that if the U.S. continues its harsh policy toward China, that will only alienate those pro-U.S. people within the Chinese cities, but also make them very difficult to defend their policies, right? You know, yeah. So, for example, if she talked to two kinds of people, and then you know, pro pro-U.S. and anti-U.S., and then when the U.S. makes, you know, keep making harsh policies toward China, it will make it very difficult for the pro-US EBs in China to make their argument, right? And then to make their argument heard yeah. to Xi Jinping. So I think that, you know, my advice would be really think about the domestic politics in China and then think about how to make coalition with the elites in China who are supportive of a friendlier and moderate US-China relations. And think about, you know, how to make your policies, you know, targeting at those uh, people and then make them more powerful within Chinese yeah. politics. I, I think you know that's the way going forward. I think that, that keeping the, the current policy and also, you know, a lot of the policies are really counterproductive, but also it's part of COVID, but also, you know, before the COVID it started that uh, to restrict, you know, for example, students to come to here, but also like visiting scholars, party members, you know, those policies are very counterintuitive because the uh, those people are the friends of the U.S., right? You know, once you allow more people like you know, myself, you know, come to the U.S., you know, we know the society better. We know how democracy works. We know how the U.S. works. And then the only thing we can do is to tell our Chinese family and friends about the reality in this country. That's that's only helpful for U.S.-China relations. Once you restrict migration, for example, that's very counterproductive, I think. I, I totally agree with you. It's it, the same thing goes for the U.S. Like, I, I know a number of students here, one in particular family friends, who has been studying Chinese for, I don't know, six, seven years. And she would love to go study right now in China and continue her education. And we need a lot of that. Like, first of all, there's, you know, there's, you need to support Chinese coming here to study. And we really need to support Americans going there. Yes. And then you really begin to see behind the surface and break this up. And people be shocked at how similar the aspirations are for many families, which is, you know, good life, seeing the world, good for their kids. I mean, the, anyways, it sounds kind of idealistic, but I also found that it was very true. Yeah. You know, you sit down for a good meal in somebody's household and everything, you know, begins to change. And if you add the language into it, your mind really, really exactly. Exactly. Uh, expands. I would say on the things I didn't learn in school, you know, traveling abroad, living abroad was probably the biggest thing I learned that changed my perspective. So let me ask you that. And then the one last question, because we've already eaten up a lot of your time. So relative to your whole journey from Beijing you know, seeing Tiananmen Square to where you are now, what are some of the biggest things you've learned in life that you didn't learn in school, that you just learned to go back going down this path? That's a great question. I guess, you know, one thing that I learned, um, it's probably, you know, something that my teachers never told me, that is everything, if there's some benefits, there are some costs, you know. <laughs> what we learn in school mm-hmm. is this, you know, always one directional, that is you do this, it will benefit from this. But I guess, you know, one thing that I learned from real politics and also just studying politics is um, there, there are always two sides uh, for anything, right? There, you know, 
some good things or some bad things. And, yes. and I, I think when when we make decisions, but also when politicians make decisions, um, you know, the dilemma that they have is really important to understand. That is also, you know, for, for me as well, you know, coming to the U.S., there are a lot of benefits. I, you know, it's certainly, you know, I, my, you know, my career really benefited from being educated in the U.S., but also the costs are not trivial. You know, the um, being not able to see my parents yes. for three years, you know, it's not trivial. So I think that, um, and for politicians as well, you know, for rulers in China, you know, when they want to stay in power, uh, they can live longer. That's the benefit. But also at the same time, you know, my study shows that the cost of doing this is they have to fragment the elites, which means that um, the government will become weaker and then they cannot make the right policies because the elites are so incoherent, right? Uh, so that, you know, those are the things, I guess, that I learned from my research and also life experience. No, I think that that's very deep. I think that that's an aspect of just getting older and maturing is that, and I think it's frankly, it's one of the biggest benefits of A, an education and B, getting older, I mean, there's there's cost to getting older, but that ability to see those two sides of issues is where the real richness uh, comes from. And, and the last question for me is, I always say to any of our guests, do you have any, do you have any, I've just bombarded you with questions for an hour plus. So do you have any questions you want to ask me before we part? Well, you mentioned you have this uh, Russian experience. So is that before the, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union or after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was it was right at the same time. So I oh, wow. uh, I'm older than you. Uh, I moved there. I graduated college in 1991. That was the first time that it was possible to move to Russia and not have the strict control of the Communist Party. Yeah. And so I moved there. I lived there from 91 to 94. And so when you were describing the tanks there, I saw the exact same thing. I re- I was there oh, in the wow. coup of 1993, and I saw. I didn't serve in the military or anything. And I remember seeing the tanks come into Moscow that night and then was right next to them when they were firing the next day. And it changes your thinking. You know, you could read some political theory that the government is basically the only people who are allowed to execute violence to, but then when you see it firsthand, it's like, right. oh, that's what their power is. It's very concrete. And this is what a disagreement looks like. So uh, I was there from 91 to 94, but my wife there, her son was born there, as I said, and then I came back here and went to graduate school and then continued my career and traveled a lot there, then traveled a lot in China up till the COVID struck. And I haven't been to oh, China wow. since yeah. COVID, uh, since COVID happened, unfortunately. Well, that, that experience of seeing the regime falling, it must be a very dramatic experience because it's probably more dramatic than me seeing 1989 because you know at the end of the day in China, the regime was still there, just, you know, protests. But then in the Soviet Union, it was a sea change, right? You know, you know, everything changed basically. Yes, and many people need what I would describe as a mythology, a story to have something to believe in. And this is why like in Hollywood movies have a clear villain and then they often have a happy ending because people crave this to get out and live. And all countries have foundation myths. The United States has one, China has one. The Soviet Union had one too. And I can say that when you say to people all at once, like everything we told you about Lenin and Stalin, basically we're lying to you. It's not true. Actually, they were serial killers that murdered lots of people. That may be factually true, And I think it was like, if you look at Lenin's history, he was the person who really came up with the first idea of mass terror with technology to get people to do things. But many people cannot handle hearing that story. It's just too painful for them. 
It's like a family talking about a drunken uncle or somebody like that. They don't, I personally believe that one question I didn't get to ask you, which we ran out of time, but I think the destroying of history in China, the suppressing of the Tiananmen and all these uh, cultural revolution, you know, you're, maybe if you just offer a minute on that, it's so interesting. I saw in uh, Russia what it's like for people to lose their foundation myth. And I'm seeing a little bit of the United States too that, wait a minute, maybe the United States is one power among many as opposed to the supreme power. If people lose this myth, it's very scary. And so that was that was a real learning I had from Russia. I was like, just tell them the truth. Yeah. Well, a lot of people have trouble hearing the truth and still having faith. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the Catholic Church is another example, that type of thing. Very quickly on the destruction of history in China, what are the risks of that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of coming back, you know, so the, you know, like you said, the Cultural revolution really destroyed tradition. You know, the you know the goal of the cultural so-called cultural revolution is to destroy people's worship of old traditions, old culture. That is, they want people. You know, the Communist Party want people to believe in communism. Yes. But then, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, um, uh, communism also collapsed. You know, people right no longer believe in communism because capitalism came and then that you know that's the trouble i think i think that uh, you know we can even call it a belief crisis maybe in the 1990s when people were basically chasing money right and then and then the communist party's strategy in the 1990s is to reinstall nationalism that is you know all the rhetoric that we saw today for example to talk about the re um of the chinese civilization is basically coming back to history to remind people that uh, you know you don't need to uh, believe in communism, but you have to believe in our great civilization. Yes, right? the Chinese civilization, you know, started five thousand years ago. They they told you, and then we were great, you know, a long time ago, and then we were humiliated by the Western powers in the last two hundred years, yes. and we are now coming back again. I think that's the story they try to tell people, and then it works really well. Yes, and I think that the insecure, what I describe as insecure nationalism, is very very dangerous. You're seeing this with Russia and Ukraine right now. It's extremely dangerous. I'm really, really thankful for your time. I uh, look forward to continuing to read your research. What a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much. That's great. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps support the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.